You're listening to the MEX Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. There's something really special about that in that it's a social form of computing. When you project on a table or a wall, anybody who's in that room in proximity to that has access to it. And therefore, you kind of you naturally get these moments where multiple people can work together on that with that experience because they see it together, just like if I draw on a piece of paper in front of several people. Hello, I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of Mex, and that was Mark Ralston, co-founder of Argo Design, my guest on today's show. And he was talking there about the next generation interfaces which materialize on surfaces or in the air around us. And specifically, just one of the implications that that kind of thing might have, that those sort of interfaces may be innately more social, more shared experiences than this world of borders in which we've currently imprisoned our own very solitary digital worlds inside our individual phones and individual tablets. So this conversation with Mark was about the future. You know, fundamentally, it was a very forward-facing discussion, looking at everything from the building blocks, these emerging technologies which might enable these kind of mixed reality interfaces, things like digital eyewear, different forms of free space projection, and then to all of the implications around that, you know, things like governance and control, what happens when you usher in a new generation of computing experiences, which ultimately, that they all rely on some kind of centralized recognition of the world and objects and people. And we talked about that future because I think that's genuinely where Mark spends most of his time exploring. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, there's no lack of potential history that we could have gone over together. Uh, Mark and I have known each other for over a decade. He spoke at our third MEX conference back in 2007 in London. And Mark himself was working on software for Frog Design as far back as 1994. So certainly the discussion was informed by that deep history that he worked on a near 20-year career for Frog. And he was working on everything from the early Android smartphones to Xbox to PlayStation. But as a designer, my sense is that his motivation really has always been about imagining new possibilities. Uh, so that took him on eventually to head up creative for Frog Design globally, uh, and then to co-found Argo Design as his own firm in Austin, Texas, back in 2014. Now, you might remember from the last episode of this podcast that I mentioned one of Argo Design's experimental projects, this project they did called Interactive Light, where they were trying out some of these projected interfaces for themselves in the studio. But to be frank, yeah, that was just one of many things that Argo has done, which has caught my attention over the last few years. Uh, they've been working with Magic Leap on digital eyewear. They've been working with United Reynolds on the future of really large-scale industrial stuff. And clearly, it's not just my attention they've been catching. Um, last year, 2018, Argo Design was acquired by DXC, a big global IT services organization. Another part of this trend among the world's major tech players to look for and acquire user-centered design talent from, from design studios. Anyway, here's my conversation with Mark Ralston, uh, and I'll be back at the end 
with some thoughts for you on ghosts, digital ghosts. Hope you enjoy. It did strike me with this conversation that there's a danger that we could both make each other feel quite old here because I'm looking back and seeing that I think you got started <laughs> with Frog 94, 1994, which, which probably would have been around the time that I first started playing around with mobile technology as well. So it really becomes a bit of a question of like, how old do we want to make each other feel? How how far back do we want to go with all this stuff? Um, or do we start closer to the present day, um, like particularly some of these things around spatial computing and spatial interfaces, which I know have been much on your mind recently. I don't like to do a lot of reminiscing. I, I, I do refer to the past only in the sense of its context to things. It's a guiding um, set of examples, like the emergence of computing. If you recognize the multiple phases of it and the sort of the, the responsibility that's sort of emerged in each of those situations and the changes that happened with the public in each of those situations, it's guiding to to help you see what might be coming again, right? Uh, otherwise, if you've never seen those things, you're a new designer, you might think, you know, we're set. The mobile the mobile device is, is the culmination of all that is inventable, and uh, we'll just build from there. And, and history gives us a bit of a perspective, and also a perspective of having lived in a life when you did not have a mobile phone, and actually a, a good part of my... Um, teen years without computing in general. So those are useful things, but I don't think there's any need to particularly reminisce beyond that. So I don't mind exposing my age. I feel like it's probably a, a good nexus between experience and uh, continuing to have a fresh perspective on the future. Good. Well, that, that makes me feel slightly better about being too long in the tooth myself. So <laughs> let's, let's keep it very much in the, the present um, for now. But I'm happy to go back if you think the viewers want to hear something, you know, like how did something happen back in the day? Yeah, but really, okay. Otherwise, I don't care. I'll, I'll pull out some gems from the, the past. I have, as I always do before these, been doing a little bit of digging beforehand and pulled out some of the things of the last or, or rather the first of the MEX conferences that you participated at with us, which would have been like 2007. So there might be a gem or two from there. But I mean, let, let's talk first about this idea of, of spatial computing, because I think for most people who are going to be listening to this, they will have a general sense of that. But to me, it strikes me that the definition itself is so emergent currently you know what do we what do we mean when we're talking about spatial computing in the context of the work that you have done yeah so spatial computing is definitely worth defining even if someone has heard a, a definition before and, uh, the way I see it and the way I, I think Argo uh, given that we're pretty steeped in the the problem set right now we see it is there is first of all there's general computing which is dealing with the abstractions of data and the presentation of data so imagine things like browsing folders browsing lists of things like names or titles of music or movies or spreadsheets of data all of those things have a, a, a grade of presentation that we built a set of mechanisms around to understand how to manage that things like the view plane that is a spreadsheet or the the browsers um, that we use to browse the web or Finder and Windows that allows to browse file spaces. And that, that presents to us the world or the universe 
um, that is the computing universe that people are steeped in every day. And even the mobile phone, as much as it's application-centric, has its own kind of uh, more condensed version of that same universe. Um, and it's not really that different when you get to it. And of course, conversely, the physical world, we all grow up from infancy learning how to navigate that, um, the physical space of resting things on tables, the relationship that rooms have to buildings to have to cities to the world, etc. We learn those concepts of, of contained space and the rights are inherent in that. Like, I, if I'm in the room, I have this sort of inherent right of hearing what someone else might be saying in that room, because that's the properties of sound. Not to get too nerdy about it, but you suddenly have to think about those things when now you're converging those two spaces. Because in the computing universe, the rights to hear something are rights that are much more explicitly given. Like, I called you, and so we're in a call, and so you can hear me, and, and we can carry out a conversation. But in a room, of course, those rights are more imbued by physicality. And when you bring those two computing spaces together, you get this collision of thinking. Not only opportunity, but now you have to sort out all those questions like, Okay, so I'm going to present a computing space in the room I'm in. How do I navigate that? Do I respect th the fact that like, just like a glass of water rests on the table, can I rest a row of icons on the table? When my spreadsheet is in front of me, floating in space, does it, do I want to kind of line it up with the plane of the table? Um, because that's sort of just like everything else on a table or on a wall, you sort of try to square things up. We don't have pictures sitting askew. We like to have pictures sitting nice and tidy and we have things on the table organized. And so do, do, do I want my spreadsheet or my uh, whatever other information I have floating in space in front of me? Do I have that in context to the room or do I have it like on a computer just in context to the, the other information that I might be viewing? More so than that, uh, the uh, so, sorry, I'm getting way into the details. Just back up on the, the basic definition. It is this collision of these two spaces and the fact that a computer and the, the use of a computer is now both a physical world experience and the existing traditional computing related experience. And so uh, I'd say mixed reality or spatial computing is the collision of those two worlds and um, the design problem inherent and kind of bringing those together. Yeah, it's a pretty fascinating time to be in that space, I think, because I guess there have been things which have, have hinted at that relationship coming closer together. I mean, as you describe it straight away, you think of the experiments that have happened in mobile around skeuomorphic interfaces, for instance, where you take those very sort of literal representations of the real world and just try and translate them directly into pixels, but often without necessarily taking along some of the physics that might come with that. Yeah. Uh, and then there's those questions about, you know, do you, uh, is this a fundamentally about a 2D world in digital space and a 3D world in human physical space and digital versus analog? But Often it seems to me that the, the reality is rather more nuanced than that, that in fact you're ending up getting elements of both merging with each other, sometimes more or less successfully. And like as you were describing it, one thing sprang to mind is around what uh, they've tried to do with Android and the idea of uh, the design system they use there, where you've got certain kind of spatial layers that are um, said to sit on top 
top of each other with this idea of, of material design, that there's an element of trying to preserve that physicality of the world in the same way you might do with organizing sheets of paper in the real world. And yet at the same time, uh, much of it is still existing within that sort of 2D frame of a, a, a screen. I mean, for, for you, what's the, the part about this, this new class of emerging truly spatial interface, which excites you most? You know, what is it that's going to take us beyond that point? So that's, that's a great question because there are some things as we dig into it that we find we prefer ne- maybe not to use um, three, three-dimensional space uh, for. The, first of all, there's a design presumption going into it that I've seen from a lot of people, from our clients, designers. The first thing you do is really make everything 3D. And it's not, and, and secondly is to make everything respect the world. And that's definitely not the case. Some things you want to rest on the table and some things computing brings an advantage. The fact that it ignores the world and I just need to see the spreadsheet in front of me. And, and sorry to use the spreadsheet example because I think that's the, one of the other points is computing in physical space isn't really just the repetition of the same models of experiences that we have in the two-dimensional computing world brought out in the 3D. It's actually a whole new class of thing. And it tends to be related to the context of normal life. So when you're in the kitchen and you're trying to cook, you can rest cooking instructions within your line of sight easily um, rather than trying to find a comfortable place to rest the device. So virtually things can place themselves uh, to be there with you. And, and in a, of course, industrial cases, when you're building something or repairing something, the instructions for that can rest within your line of sight. And even more importantly, those things can, rather than being the sort of secondary plane of, re- of description, they can actually exist with the event of, let's say, a repair or cooking a dish. And so much like a, an instruction, let's say a recipe for cooking, you know, has first do this, second do that, and it's all there on a page, that content le- leaps off the page and just becomes part of the event of cooking. And so as you pour the you know, the initial ingredients into a bowl, the text is there with you as you're doing it on the things that it's referring to. So it's it's information in context to the world and more importantly, sort of attached uh, smartly to the world and which is all still just a vision because getting all of that information in that in that way is still an incredible computing lift. So I want to be realistic because we are doing real work with that right now. Um, with clients like Magic Leap, it's still a huge lift just to create a good mesh of the world, which is a sort of a, a pixel representation of the sort of spatial boundaries, and then to recognize the objects in that world. Um, we're getting there. And as we get there, these principles come to play. And there is, you can see, it, it, it's the right vision to think of the value of computing as really extending your understanding of the world and your use of the world. Um, so as you walk to a door, it can say it's locked or it can say you don't have a right to enter this room. But as doors become smart, again, another quick example, that door can't see you. You can see that the door is unlocked and you just enter. So those little interfaces, those little moments where you're interacting with the physical world become smarter. You can imagine yourself at a party with a group of people and being able to see above each person uh, some measure of information that helps you uh, navigate, right? And some of that's creepy, right? It immediately sort of breaks certain social mores. But maybe in more professional situations where you're trying to find customers in a conference or you're trying to find uh, maybe you're single and you're at a singles bar, you're trying to find good matches, 
those sort of things might be considered legitimate assistance to your social engagement. Well, I guess sticking with that analogy, there are so many elements of emerging technology where the key seems to be how you relate that back to people's existing expectations of etiquette. And perhaps the long-term goal is that you stretch people's behavior and you take them to a place where they can do things that they weren't able to do before or even imagine doing before. But there's perhaps a, a gentleness to that curve, which it strikes me is important. I mean, if you use that analogy there of, of the party, there are numerous things that we already as humans do to observe how other people are behaving, what's happening in a party, what kind of signals the individuals are giving off that we might or might not want to talk to. So that there's there are things in the human brain that already have that expectation. And maybe it's a little bit about the rapidity with which you take people on that journey to something which extends that capability far beyond what we already have with our, our kind of human sixth sense at the moment. I think there, for a while, there are some gentle signals as we transition from that sort of obvious social moment where someone stares down at their phone and you can tell that they're might say sort of leaving the physical moment and popping into the digital moment uh, and then popping right out. Uh, it's something we do every day now and it's gone from a rude uh, gesture to something everybody does and so we kind of accept it to a certain degree. And there's there's some lines still for that, but generally people pull out their phones about any time, anywhere. And as mixed reality devices emerge, having the eyepieces on uh, will probably be that signal you'll still see that that hardware is unique to normal eyewear and you'll know they're experiencing content that you can't see. Now, that's where the bridge gets a little foggier, right? The bridge into this new level of experiences because two different vectors. One is you can't see what they can see. And so it's not as publicly visible as an iPhone. Um, you can't see that they may be viewing information about you. And so it's in that way... It breaks a certain trust to people implicitly try and develop in a social situation. The second is that device eventually gets small enough to where you can't necessarily tell who's got it on and who doesn't. And the number of things that they'll be able to do with that device are is exceptional. The kind of information they can pull up, um, even down to the point of, you know, it's one of the things we talk about is sort of redecorating the world in front of them. So they're they're looking at the world with painted walls, right? They've taken all the walls in the room and decided they'd like, they'd prefer it in another color. And they've taken your outfit and added a few decorations. And of course, they've looked up all the information they, they prefer to see in front of them about um, the people and the, maybe even the conversation, maybe even the systems listening to the conversation and feeding clever quips back. So that this person sounds really fascinating and, and well informed. And so the trust, you know, so I'm pushing pretty out far out into the future with those ideas, but those are all linearly within our sightline of this class of devices. So they're not, you know, science fiction, they're just a matter of time that we arrive at that capability. Uh, what about the, the sort of technology building blocks to, to make this real? Because um, a lot of things you're describing, I mean, there's a fundamental to it, which is that a lot of these interfaces are going to need to break outside the screens that they're contained within at the moment. You know, that has been, I guess, a pretty fundamental expectation of all of the work that you have done in digital up until this latest generation is that in some way they were all contained within screens. And now we're at this inflection point where actually many of those interfaces may come to exist outside that 
frame, whether it be the frame of a smartphone, iPad, or a desktop PC, or whatever it is, they're, they're going to be uh, existing within a, a different sort of a space. Are there particular devices that you see which you think are going to push us through to that? I mean, we've talked a little bit about the idea of eyewear of some kind, some kind of digital eyewear. Um, but what about things yeah. like free space projection as well? I mean, do you see one of those as being more likely than the other to emerge as, as being the kind of thing that brings this into the mainstream? It's it's tough to guess exactly. But if, if I had to guess now, I believe the eyewear is the primary vector right now. There's so much excitement that it does break through that people can't help but put all their energies into that. And as such, I expect that to sort of kick off this sort of larger industry realization that that is the future. And but as such, they'll also hit this certain wall. There's a there's going to be a lot of effort and therefore many years to shrink the eyewear down to the point where it's socially acceptable to keep it on often enough. We still have this basic situation like early computing that it's clunky enough that it, you know, like early computing, it stays in the den in the house or it stays just at the office. And with eyewear, it sort of gets put on to use and then taken off and left uh, on a table somewhere. It doesn't stay in your pocket like the iPhone. And that is, as simple as that sounds, it's so fundamental to everything else that we imagine it might be good for. If it's not with you, it doesn't matter what it can do. So we've got to cross that line. The second is once that sort of industry, I think our industry realizes and the technology industry realizes that that's the future, the other kind of backup tech like projected spaces, I think will be embraced, uh, hopefully at least, that's my hope, is that it's embraced as a reasonable proxy to that experience. The idea of projecting on walls and tables and in a lot of ways, um, looking, um, I think the breakthrough is that people realize it, it's a reasonable replacement to the light bulb itself. That if a number of light bulbs, or maybe even aggressively every light bulb in a building becomes, rather than a single pixel light, becomes a multi-pixel light that can either project general light or project very specific lit computing readouts, um, then we can overtake our spaces with kind of a smart presence of computing that shows up on surfaces when we need it and when we don't. There's something really special about that in that it's a social form of computing. When you project on a table or a wall, anybody who's in that room in proximity to that has access to it. And therefore, you kind of you naturally get these moments where multiple people can work together on that with that experience. Because they see it together, just like if I draw on a piece of paper in front of several people. We all see it. It's even, you might say, more public than that because the person who has the pen in their hand has sort of control over the paper. Whereas with projected experience on a table, everybody can engage it equally. Yeah, I think that as well as just the, the, the necessary smartness, we've had a, a surge of smart homes, smart buildings, smart everything. And it's obviously that the excitement around that's dramatically slowed down. And I think it needs the last mile of, of interface. Um, there's a last mile of sort of reliability and ubiquity that's necessary as well. But I'd say all, the interface is also part of the equation. When you have a heads-up experience where you can look at a door and the door can ostensibly talk back to you, you know, on the door, you don't need a screen on the door. You can hide the electronics that might participate in locking and unlocking that door, and the door itself can 
use those electronics to sort of be part of the conversation it has with you. Like, I can let you in. So more and more things around us, as they are, you know, physically smarter, they can unlock themselves, they can turn themselves on, they can cook that, uh, boil that pot of coffee, those things will use this emerging interface and will find the two sort of add up to more of a holistic value proposition. It's not a huge deal, but I, I think it's part of the equation. How does that change or, or challenge the skills, the design skills that you might bring to making oh, yeah. good experiences out of that? And, and I guess I mean the question in a couple of contexts. I mean, firstly, for, for you personally, and you know what you're seeing has been important for you to be able to get a, a handle on that, but also as the, the founder of a growing design agency, whether that's having an impact on the kind of people, the kind of talent that you're looking to bring into your business to be able to, to deal with this different approach. Well, um, it's been happening to this industry for a while where we've concerned ourselves more with larger scale experiences than solely with individual devices, right? From the early days of industrial design, even if the device was, you know, something big like a car or an airplane, it was a contained problem set. And there, there was a small class of people who worried about Things like infrastructure, like, well, designing an airport. It's a pretty special class of folks, and, and it was an outcropping of architecture. Now we have a much more general class of designers who find themselves in front of problems like that more often. And on top of that, those classes of problems aren't historical. They're new, and they're almost new every single day. Every industry is being kind of disrupted. We're working with a construction supply company. They, they rent out bulldozers and chainsaws and cranes and lifts and such to companies building skyscrapers. So you'd think that's a really old industry, really traditional, yet they're being completely disrupted by the fact that all those devices are exist in a virtual plane as well as a physical plane, right? You have a bulldozer out in a muddy field, but that is also a rolling data point. And, and so that has um, been part of this sort of very progressive change of what it means to be a designer. So to concern yourselves with that client, United Rentals, is to concern yourselves not only with the physicality of managing equipment, but the virtuality of how that equipment looks as a stream of data and how you present that, how you talk about it. So designers are, sort of, are I think, in the last 10 years grappling with these larger scale experiences more often. And so the class of devices or experiences that we've been talking about here, those are just that problem magnified dramatically and in a lot of ways shrunk down to the very intimate nature of just sitting at a table and looking at the things around you, you know, looking at a cup of coffee and, and having to ask yourself and imagining one day we're going to have to ask ourselves, well, what if that cup of coffee can talk and tell its story? What, what information is relevant there? Is there an opportunity to sort of bring a digital layer to that cup of coffee? Something so simple and is there more there or do we just leave it alone? Um, that question, you could say, you can say it's a silly question, but the point is that question emerges from almost everything around us. Because with this layer, if you look at an object, we have, and you asked earlier about sort of what are the layers of technology, one of the most critical layers emerging is this catalog of recognizable objects. And from that, the connection of that recognition to this existing and growing data set about everything in the world, right? You could just go to Google and type in coffee and right there's mountains and mountains of data from specific brand related information to uh, you know what it is and where it was grown and et cetera et cetera and so 
imagine tying all that information and focusing it on individual moments in people's lives. It's it is that experience design problem writ large and also brought down to this really tiny little moments in life. And boy, that's crazy exciting. And to your final part of your question, where do you get people who are good at that? Um, I think largely you're having to just train them up. So they're coming from people who specialize in the artifacts, right? The design of things. And there's an emergent class of people who have a very strong sense of information and information hierarchy. I mean, today, then the inclination for people to talk about ontologies and taxonomies and the classes of information and et cetera. It's almost like a normal conversation to have around a studio, whereas you know, 20, to 20 years ago, that would have sounded weirdly nerdy and specific. So those sort of things I think are emergent as opposed to like a, a radical new hiring problem. Do you find that you get enough latitude within the client projects that you're doing to, to do enough experimentation to, to keep you happy that your skills are sharp and are developing for the future around that area? Or, or do you as a studio find that you need to undertake your own activities to be able to, to push that, that forward outside of what you're doing for specific clients? We've made it our mission to take on a class of very difficult technical problems. And I think we were lucky to come together as a group early on who had through our career at Frog worked on a great number of original platforms. So I worked on some, a lot of early Android phones, several platforms that predate Android from Motorola, Nokia, several competitors that would be Androids that didn't make it, <laughs> early Windows experience components, PlayStation, Xbox work. So lots of new platforms, sometimes trivial, sometimes important. And so we had a sense of those things. So um, I think we, from that level of experience, get very exciting and fulfilling work in general. Not everything we're doing exists at that level. And that's actually probably a healthy thing. We're also doing some, like I said, something like United Rentals starts off sounding very basic. And it turns out to be almost the same level of crazy exciting when you really take it apart and realize this is you know, virtualization of equipment on a massive scale. But that still doesn't fulfill this, this sort of last mile of looking at where things might be going. Client, Not every client is ready to ask for that. So we do spend a reasonable percentage of our time grappling with some of the problems that we think um, need early thinking. And that's where interactive light comes from. Interactive light is a way for us to explore this mixed reality space, this idea of the natural problem set of computing that you know is there to help us with tasks like basic things like cooking as an example and how those might interact in the physical space right so uh, it's one fairly low cost way of really exploring that vocabulary and the mechanics of that really you get down to really basic mechanics that are, can be incredibly compelling to explore and and the industry's not ready to ask us to explore this so we come up with our own problems like i'll give you a really a fun one so you have a table in front of you and you've got a cup of coffee there and you've got your a book, let's say, and uh, a lamp. Those are physical things. And if you grab the book and scoot it over, you have control over that, right? You moved the book and now you cleared a little bit of space where the book used to be. Now imagine you're projecting a space of computing on top of that. So it's now you have not only a book, but you've got a, let's say, a, um, a, 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 a square of information like a recipe or a digital projected book. So you've got not only a digital book, you've got an analog book. That book needs to be projected on a clean space on the table. So it needs to figure out 
where can I put my digital book under that table? And of course, you can move your physical book over that. What happens? So we, we had to figure out like, well, we have an algorithm that's constantly tracking what's the available clean space on the table, and it, it makes the information dance. So it moves from one clean space to another. So if you move your book over the current projection, it'll find another space that it can best fit in. And so it's a, there's a certain elasticity going on there. It's, it's like Windows. Um, Windows or the Mac, they for years worked out the relationship of multiple windows. You have a browser open, a spreadsheet open, an email open. You have a set of hotkeys and on-screen controls to sort of keep those organized. Well, we've had to figure out like what's the sim- similar model to that to a joint digital physical space where you have control over some things and others you, you know, are, are real objects like a lamp. It strikes me as you described that how multifaceted that that challenge is. Uh, I mean, at a technology level, clearly there is experimentation going on there about what kind of technologies even make that that sort of thing possible. At the behavioral level, how, how does users' uh, attitude to those things evolve as they spend more time with it? Uh, but also something which I, I think you kind of alluded to a little bit earlier as well, an area maybe of of responsibility there about how some of those rules and behaviors are dictated by whatever platform it is ends up powering for, for the mass market. Because, you know, there fundamentally a lot of that comes down to visual recognition of some kind. And I think you mentioned earlier about the idea that we go to Google currently to search for basically sort of text and, and image-based information. But this idea that Whatever platform emerges to power these experiences for a large number of, of consumers in the mass market, there's going to need to be some kind of underlying image recognition, object recognition engine, which makes all of that happen. And it, it sort of brings the question up in my mind, whether or not you feel that that's within the purview of designers to be thinking about how that platform might behave and, and what sort of responsibility that might entail if we do end up with you know some kind of world recognition engine if you like that is is powering <laughs> a lot of those experiences we are working on that basic technology we're participating in that let's say and the problem that designers have in front of them isn't the business problem yet it is just the problem of trying to create reasonable class systems so a cup of coffee exists as an idea it exists as an, a singleton that particular cup of coffee in the world even if it might be identical to thousands of others, it is that cup of coffee in that room at that moment. And then there is the class of things, which exists also as product SKUs or product families and become generalizations like, you know, the class of object like a cup of coffee. It's it's a nested, sticky, messy problem um, that there's not even, you might say, common agreement. And so coming up with just a system there that doesn't lock people into some puritanical sense of the world, like some animal kingdom description that is fixed, which would not work, is a huge problem. It's a huge task in front of us. Because when you look at an object and you say, what is that? Do you want to know where to buy it? Do you want to know what is that particular one? Oh, that's Bob's cup of coffee? Or is that a cup of coffee? Or is that Folger's, you know, morning blend? Um, Sorry, I'm not a coffee drinker, so... (laughs) You know, whatever you you want to, what is it you're trying to figure out? So, what class of information really should be put into play at that moment? Then it gets more to I think the nature of your question is okay. Who's going to bring up that information? And 
that's where it gets super sticky. And like I said, it's not yet a designer's um, responsibility to work out, but it is easily one of the scariest places uh, in our emergent future because the, the way we know about and see and feel the world is becoming increasingly in fewer and fewer people's hands. So the knowledge of what, quote, that is, is coming from too few sources. And there's very little authority in, in, in curating that. And right now, of course, it's being instrumented to sell you something else. Uh, so it's not just information from one single source. It's information from a source that has a decided interest in what you do with that information. They have a decided interest that you buy more stuff. And I don't mean to sound polemic about that, but that's, I think that's a fair assessment of, of how that's playing out today. I think it's even greater that when you think of the greatest object in this information system that we're discussing is ourselves and our own personal identity, our sense of self. And more and more of our self, our, the way we identify ourselves and the way others learn about us and know us is information stored, curated, managed and even created by third parties. So you might say we're extending the very nature of ourselves into the digital sphere, and we've loaned that out to a set of private parties who manage it, and they have a decidedly different interest in how we express ourselves than, than, our, than we do. Right? They, they want to instrument yourself as, as part of, a again, a sort of a commercial engine, the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world. See your tweets as part of an ever, see your, your communications, your identity as part of an ever growing commercial opportunity. And I don't necessarily blame them for that, but that's a lot of responsibility in too few hands um, when it comes down to our own sense of self and the growing dependency we have on those vehicles to, to exist. Um, and, and there's not a clear solution where it goes. Indeed. And it seems like uh, quite a, a complex set of, of questions and challenges to overcome that might form that, that overall solution. I mean, you, you mentioned there about, uh, for the moment at least, designers per se are not in the business of having to concern themselves with some of those outcomes. But if we think about the role of the designer as being about creating a, a good and useful experience for people, if we project further into the future and start to think about what might define a good and useful experience, then it does take you into those areas around privacy, governance, the uh, ownership of those different experiences that might make you think, well, actually, there is a, a, a designed element, if you like, to those parts of that experience, which makes it fundamentally something that is useful and, and friendly to people, as opposed to something which is just usable in the sense of it being convenient or, or quick or efficient. I have some problem with that argument in that it, it sounds much like um, talking about making safer guns. It's We can nip at the edges, much like designing a safer gun, but it ultimately is still fundamentally dangerous at its core. We are more practically as designers, we're hired by companies and we're instruments of those companies. Uh, towards their goals. And unless we are uh, the small few in charge of those companies, we're beholden to those companies' goals. And that's, it, it still falls outside of designers' purview to, to, re, to, to significantly change that at the, at the moment. Do, do you think there comes a point in the future then where a designer simply has to say, no, this isn't 
the project or the area that I want to be be working in. If we accept then that designers essentially once once hired should be working in the interests of, of who's hired them, do you think that's something designers need to prepare themselves for in the future? Sure, on the part of the individual designer, absolutely, and and we have our own share of projects we've said no to. But for each of those projects, there was someone else who who took it up, and that's that's a fundamental challenge. It's Look, this is a, a, a this is you've brought up one of the uh, a huge dilemma, right? Design is. Um, I, I wrote an article once, um, so to, just to use that, it's the sort of role of a designer is either a doctor, a lawyer, or a priest. And what we're talking about is really the lawyer grade problem. We're hired as like lawyers to serve our client's interest. We can take on some boundaries, much like a doctor, with the do no harm. But you know, even like a doctor, we we're we're saving both the the evil and the good um, when we when we try and treat somebody. And much like a priest, uh, we don't have control over the, the moral direction. We can offer moral advice, but you know, most priests in modern society don't actually have control over that. They just offer sort of best indications of where to go with things. And uh, so that, that those three models to me are helpful in kind of reminding designers the boundaries of, of how they can be realistically influential. We, I think there's too much conversation today where we're unrealistically talking about designers' roles. And I wish it were different, but and, and I'd love to be corrected if someone <laughs> has a correction to offer me, but I, I don't see it. Um, um, we'll have to try and dig out a, a link to that article and put it in the show notes so that listeners can, can go and have a look. And I'd encourage them to, yeah, to get in touch if they have some feedback and we can get a, a conversation going on around it. That'd be great. Yeah, uh, it's, it is, it's a fundamental challenge nowadays because so much of the world is changing and it is a designable world right now. Yeah, I tell the young designers this is one of the most exciting times in history because so much of the world is being reinvented through technology. The intimate aspects of what it means to be alive are changing. And those are all opportunities to be designed. And so we do have this immense level of control. And that's given us even the possibility of having this argument, let's say. So that's the upside, right? But given that we're having this argument, it is also responding on us to be um, wide-eyed about it, to be realistic about it. And as we see some of these negative things happening, to find true uh, solutions for it, not blind ourselves in the idea that we'll just design a better, I, I don't know, we'll, we'll resist it quietly. It's, I don't think that's practical. Um, I don't think it's working right now, at least, uh, if we look at what's happening. Yeah, I, I think. Sorry, uh, we're getting into a dark spot here. <laughs> no, I mean, well, I, I guess there are elements of, of darkness to it, but um, given the scale of the opportunity, that's kind of to, to be expected. Perhaps one of the, the, the exciting things about exploring something of this scale is that it takes you to places which, um, you know, feel risky and you have to ask those, those kind of questions. I mean, especially, at least when I think about this, there's something about the, the scale of impact that a, a design solution can have when it ends up becoming as successful as, I mean, you and I first met in the era of the emergence of the smartphone. And when you think about the impact that that has then gone on to have on people's lives, you know, the whole idea of open smartphone operating systems and the way in which that's enabled this mass personalization of experiences, you know, bringing out computing to a bunch of people who maybe would not have experienced it as rapidly as, as they have. When you think about that scale of impact, and then you think about how much larger the scale of impact could be for this next generation, it does also make you think about, well, where 
and how are some of those things being designed and how might that influence that impact that it has? Like I know you guys are based um, in Austin and Texas and that was where Argo Design um, originated. But do you think about that at all in terms of how that sort of the, the, the culture of practice, if you like, within organizations which then go on to do global work ends up having that kind of ripple effect across a much larger territory? Well, yeah, uh, I think the class of problems we're talking about here are being solved with a global mindset. I mean, there's still some places in the world where maybe the design um, needs to be decidedly different. A lot of closed societies, you you would think differently if you were designing with those in mind. But otherwise, despite that some of that design's happening in Austin or happening in San Francisco or in London, it doesn't really matter. There tend to be global problems. Um, there are local problems you can get assigned, but that's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about the digital experiences that when they go to market, they tend to go to market everywhere for everyone. They're, a, you know, what you call AEEE, all of the time, everyone, everywhere, everything, grade problems. And um, so while we bring some mindset, given that we live here in Austin or some of our designers, you know, they're in New York and uh, we have another studio in Amsterdam, they bring the mindset of those environments. It is like other problems where that that mindset, I think, changes things that much. I think it tends to be much more driven by the nature of the problem and the, the businesses that we're serving, uh, as opposed to the sort of local flavor. Yeah, and sorry, I got a little off track from your question, but uh, it, it all helps me to, to understand a bit more about you know. I guess one of the things that fascinates me with all design organizations and uh, about why they they come to be and how they come to be where they are and the degree to which that influences the the work that they do um i think it's you're absolutely right there are some things where the problem itself ends up essentially overriding all of that uh, but there are always those those influences personal local whatever you want to call them which the problem solvers bring to those things that yeah i, I think I always that find kind those of things emerge yeah, I, well, in, insofar as they're interesting, they emerge as style gestures and how things look, um, maybe um, a bit of optimism or pessimism and how you attach you know, yourself to some of the, the functionality, maybe how much openness you leave into the, the way the product expresses itself. So, so, yeah, I think you're right. There's some measure of culture you bring to it. I have to say, Austin, as an environment, is less about bringing specific point of view because Austin is really a huge melting pot of people who have moved here from so many other places. It just turned out to be an accident of a good open community. It had a great arts, uh, music background. It sort of meant it was an exciting place to, to live, you know, a fun place to live. And then it had a, for a while, an, a tie to Silicon Valley through the chip making just years ago back in the 70s. And so it was sort of, you might say, the little brother to the this emerging giant environment in, in California. And um, from that, it was just the cheaper alternative for living. And today now, it's it's just attracted a massive audience of people in the technology industry. And it's so there's not that many people you'd say are long-term natives of Austin. And I am, but uh, almost everyone I know moved here at some point in the last 20 years. And how did you come to be in Austin yourself? You say you were native, as in you were, you were born and raised in Austin? Yeah, I spent almost all my life here. I spent some years in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which gives me a particular perspective about middle America, which I think is very healthy. 
Um, gives me a particular cynical eye towards technology, despite the fact that it is my trade. And, and so I, I do cherish that upbringing, you know, in terms of it being helpful and informative towards what we do. Well, I guess that's one of the fundamentals of, of user-centered design, really, isn't it? Is being able to have a bit of that healthy, perhaps cynicism is the wrong word, maybe skepticism is, is a, a better term for it about some of these advances. Skepticism. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, you talked about the days um, when I first uh, met you. We were in that heady day of just inventing useful excuses for technology. And boy, was that exciting. And, uh, you know, and I apologize. My pessimism today is just that we, we got what we wanted. We came up with a bazillion really awesome uses. And now it has become an, an inextricable part. I said that right. <laughs> a integral part of every person's life. You cannot leave your house without your phone. We're all wed to it. And all of, the, of course, the software extensions of that are digital cells or online. And so, okay, great, we got that. Now what? Unfortunately, I think it has paved a path looking forward where too few people own that. I mean, we have nothing short of some massive global political problems that you'd say very directly stem from very, very few technologies. Just a handful of technology companies have this stranglehold on our digital lives and ourselves and how we see how the world is acting and, and they're able to amplify or, or hide uh, things. And so I think we're in this sort of clumsy middle phase. Um, after having breathlessly invented all these beautiful things, we now are looking at what we invented and going, oh shit, we forgot to build some basic boundaries. And so I think for the next few years, we've got quite a bit of work to do to, to try and uh, we as a whole industry, not just designers, but the people responsible for those products have to, you might say, reconstitute them with kind of society in mind. And then hopefully we can get on to this, maybe this third phase of breathlessly building again, because there's so much still left to build. Yeah, it's it's going to be a, a fascinating, fascinating time. It really is. I mean, I think in my mind, a lot of it depends on where you sort of set your level of, of perspective. And I think if you zoom it out to a certain distance, one of the things which I guess makes me hopeful about the next generation of technology is I think it's, it is a very human behavior to, if you like, gorge on something when it first emerges or it's seen to be in abundance. And there's this sense that, that I have, at least personally, that uh, we as humans have sort of gorged on this first emergence of this mass uh, of communication technology that probably is synonymous with, with smartphones and, and their emergence um, worldwide in, in most people's minds. And that it's pretty natural that when something like that abundance occurs, that humans make the, the most of it and then suddenly get to a point where they think, hmm, perhaps this hasn't made me feel quite as well as I, I hoped it would. And then there's a, a reflection and perhaps a, a dialing back of that and a rethink before the, the next generation emerges. And maybe those resources and that abundance is managed a bit more smartly in the future. But it, it is yeah, I like going to be a, gorging. a fascinating time. I like the gorging analogy. So yeah, let's just hope this is the analogy is... Um, is correct, and we've gorged on a lot of chocolate cake, and and it's not a lot of heroin. Let's say because the <laughs> outcomes are very. Good. 
Indeed, the outcomes are very indeed. different. Yeah, I'd definitely be uh, preferring the chocolate cake, I think. Um, but, I mean, Mark, you know, you mentioned there, and I think I've alluded to it as well, that you, that you and I met when you were uh, one of the senior creatives at Frog Design, which obviously is, is one of the world's best-known design firms. You've founded your own design business in, in Argo Design, which I know has now been acquired by um, a larger IT company as well. And it, it does make me wonder... Uh, if we're having this conversation another 10 years into the future, which I think is probably when you were last at one of our MEX conferences, is there anything left yet for you in your career that you haven't yet had a chance to work on that you're really hoping you will do? Um, Project-wise, it's this space in computing is still massively compelling. It's still very early. And so I have very much focus on that and all the little connections that it draws to the industry that exists right the companies out there uh, so i'm still just totally digging that separately to build a company is itself an act right so it's not necessarily the work you're doing for your clients um, as the only kind of mission to pursue but the mission of building something that lasts when you, when i founded this crew uh the Argo design it was built around, uh, you know, in the early days of it, it was built around the personalities, right? Built around myself and the few people that we, we started as. And the goal right now is to build something that's bigger than all of us, build something that lasts beyond us. And so that itself is a compelling thing to be focused on right now. It's interesting in its own right and it has its, you know, it has challenges. In my time at Frog Design, we went through those similar kinds of challenges. Um, when I joined Frog, it was really a cult of Hartman Essenier, right? It was a company that was all about him. And at the point at which he retired, uh, it really had to learn how to be more than Hartman and Hartman's legacy and his influence. Uh, and, you know, my career was largely elevated by that moment. I took over to run Globally Creative at Frog. And in doing that, Frog also became greater than any single individual. It became a company that could sort of transcend the people that came and went. And you can see today, Frog is a brand we know about that's beyond anybody you might name at Frog. And um, so Argo's in this sort of early stages of a similar transformation. And that doesn't mean I'm going anywhere. It just means it needs to be bigger than what I do with it every day. And that, that itself is a, in design, is a beautiful thing to be focused on, you know, in terms of being compelling and uh, feeling worthwhile. Uh, so there's the work, like I said, a lot of interesting platform opportunities. What's happening in computing today is happening in the, the self, the digitization of the self, the sort of emergent duality of what it means to be a human is itself the most compelling idea to me. And the platform stuff is what's driving so much of that and the changes in that. So, of course, focusing on platforms and what platforms you do with people is, to me, the, the way to sort of get at that. So those, those are my those are my hot buttons right now. Well, it, it sounds like a fascinating time for both you and Argo. And I really appreciate you, you know, getting together and, and having this talk several years on from, from when we last got together. Um, and do stay in touch and, and let us know how it's going. Obviously, I'll put links in the show notes to Argo and uh, some of the articles that you mentioned as well, so that people can go and check those out and, and follow you themselves. But Mark, thanks very much indeed for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, thanks, Mary.
There we go. Mark Ralston there, co-founder of Argo Design. You know, I really can't remember the last time I had a chat like this. So densely packed with stuff that feels right on the cusp of possibility and yet still just far enough out there to be pretty intriguingly different from what we're accustomed to today. Uh, Now at the end there I mentioned the show notes. That's where you can find all of the links to the stuff that Mark and I talked about. Now to get hold of those just head over to mobileuserexperience.com and take a look in the podcast section. There'll be links there to all of those things. So before I go, I wanted to have a bit of a ramble, a ramble about ghosts. Uh, Not the Halloween kind, not really ghosts as a a noun at all, more ghosting as a verb. And I'll tell you what prompted all of this. Uh, We had some guests over for lunch last weekend, adults and babies and kids, lots of people, lots of food, inevitably, are to baby melons in the course of the afternoon. So one of the people there has created a playlist on Spotify for their baby. Uh, It was actually the same playlist that the mum listened to uh, all through the time that she was pregnant with this little guy. Uh, And now, when he's crying, one of the things that they try is to let him listen to this playlist. Now, the sound system in our lounge is hooked up to a Chromecast. So the parents pull up this playlist on their iPhones through their Spotify premium account, uh, and they start it playing through the speakers on our wall via the Chromecast. Um, Side note, turns out that the baby has some pretty eclectic tastes. I think there was even some MC Hammer in there at one point. But, you know, each to their own. Um, Not sure how much it helped. You know, baby was happy, baby was sad. Eventually, baby was happy again. Uh, And after a while, the party wound down, everyone headed home. And when a gathering like that disperses, uh, it leaves behind a lot of things. Uh, Imprints, if you like of who was there, what happened. You know, if it's been a really good party, maybe there's a physical imprint, like the the dreaded red wine stain on the carpet. Or if you've had someone there who wears too much perfume, you know, there can even be like a lingering scent in the air. Or there's the people things forget or they've left with you as as gifts. All all of these are are tokens uh, in some way, from physical tokens to those kind of more ephemeral ones. And uh, at varying points in the future, they may come to prompt a memory of that event, of, of that occasion. Now, on this occasion, the, the memory, the ghost that was left in the room, uh, was the music. So soon after the baby and the parents had left, and this was after my partner and I had watched them head off from the driveway in their car, we switched the Chromecast over to the Apple TV, and we ended up watching a film. And it was only when the film ended, and we turned off the Apple TV, and the TV automatically switched itself back to the Chromecast, that this music rematerialized kind of out out of nowhere. I think there was something about that gap in the time between the two things, which made it all feel slightly ghostly. All of a sudden, there was Baby's Chill Out playlist back on the screen, playing through the speakers, still going on in the background, despite the fact that the owner of that music, the guardian of the device which had commanded it to happen, was now probably 20 miles away in their own home. Now, neither my partner or I uses Spotify, so this could only have come from our guests. Uh, And from a a technical perspective, I guess it could only happen because they had been there on our Wi-Fi network using their authorized iPhone to Chromecast it to our TV and to our sound system. 
So it's this, this little ghost that they're left behind, contained within the sphere of our TV. Uh, and eventually, we, we ghostbusted it. We put the ghost back in its box by just hitting the off button of the TV, which I suppose must have reset the Chromecast's connection to Spotify. And without them being, without their iPhones to act like these these wands capable of, of magicking it up on our TV, we, we wouldn't be able to get the playlist back, You know, at least until next time they come to visit. So I think there's all sorts of things going on here about permissions and rights to access certain pieces of content, about the, the role of location as a, a sort of context factor governing who can do what and where. I mean, w- what if this extends to photos? Yeah, if those same guests had been showing us, say, some photos of their baby, maybe using some sort of future free space projection system, like those ones that Mark and I were talking about during the conversation on this show, what would it be like if they could leave behind... A memory of those photos. Yeah, perhaps it's a memory that gradually fades from the wall on which they were projected, just like they left behind the memory of the playlist on a sound system. But I think most of all, what it got me thinking about was that the playful, the perhaps slightly subversive possibilities of this, yeah, of how in the future we might be able to choose and kind of play a bit with our digital footprint to decide for ourselves how much of a digital ghost we want to leave behind in places that visit. We already see this in an explicitly gaming context with things like Pokemon Go, how there are particular characters or parts of that experience which are tied to certain geographic coordinates. All all virtual characters, all virtual bits of the experience, but very specifically tied to particular physical geographies. But what about some of the other kind of longer-term ways that this might be meaningful for society? Would someone in 50 years' time, be interested to know which piece of music was played most often by the former owners of a house that they watched. Would someone like to be able to see, I don't know, something like the projected image of how a building once looked before it was remodelled by its former owners? All of these things are technically possible today, and some of them are even on the cusp of becoming available through some pretty mainstream technologies. But I guess a lot of this is going to depend on on how you feel about ghosts. I mean, these are definitely ghosts that we can believe in. They could be made real. But are they they ghosts that scare us? Are we going to embrace this kind of thing? I'd be really curious to know what you think. If you've got any thoughts, uh, drop me a line by email. The address is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. And let me know. It'd be good to get a, a conversation going. So that's it for this edition. Uh, But don't forget, if you have enjoyed it, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is to forward it loud and clear to a friend. Uh, Just send them the link to mobileuserexperience.com. And that all helps to get more people involved in our mixed community. Oh, and one last thing, uh, CES, Las Vegas. Uh, I'm going to be there this year doing some research into future digital experiences. Uh, So if you're going to be there as well. You'd like to get together and talk design or emerging technology or whatever. Uh, just drop me a line and it'd be good to see if we can find a time to make that happen. I'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.